trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to welcome my friend Caleb Franz, who is the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast. Back aboard, Caleb. I'm looking at the calendar and thinking, wow, here comes Independence Day. That's right, Brian. Yeah, Independence Day is right around the corner. And I think um, it's a great time to chat about um, what the uh, founders of, of, of this country sort of went through, what ideas they had in their head, uh, as well as uh, maybe some some forgotten little uh, tidbits about what uh, really happened uh, in the days, weeks, and events leading up to and immediately following uh, that uh, that fateful July in 1776. Well, I'm I'm game. I mean, I look. I love a day off. I love barbecue and fireworks as much as the next person. Parades and all that. But it is nice to remember that there was a lot at stake here. Where do you begin? Do you want Do you want to start with Thomas Jefferson and and uh, what he was up to prior to uh, to the uh, Declaration? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I think that's a good place to start, and uh, I think uh, you know, you know, we've we've discussed uh, Thomas Jefferson at length in the past, and I think that uh, both of us sort of agree uh, that he is sort of the intellectual um, the intellectual foundation of of this country. You know, Washington is thought of as as the father of of this country, but really the ideas of of what it means to be. Uh, America and what it means to be an American, um, I think, really stems back from the ideas that Jefferson put forth uh, on the Declaration of Independence. And it's it's often overlooked or often forgotten, but one of those ideas that he did put forth, at least in the original iteration of the Declaration of Independence, was the idea of abolition. And this is, I think, a really important distinction to make um, because whenever we're talking about these these ideas of race and of justice, and especially in a historical context in, in, in America, was the United States founded on ideas of oppression or, or was it actually founded uh, on this idea of, of liberty? And did liberty actually mean liberty for all people or, re- or rather than just white men? Um, I th- think that if you look at Jefferson's original Uh, iteration of the Declaration of Independence, not only is he staking out a bold claim that slavery is this reprehensible evil uh, that should be laid at the foot of of King George, at least in the context of the British Empire, um, it is the greatest grievance that he lists in the document. It's the longest grievance that he lists in the document. Now, it didn't pass because of uh, political uh, back and forth, especially with the South, who in in Georgia and South Carolina, and Jefferson even suspected some influences in the North, who who would benefit uh, primarily monetarily from uh, keeping the institution of slavery afloat. 
Um, but the the fact still remains that that is something that he intended on, on on keeping in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, and if he had it his way, it would be in the final draft. I know that uh, I, I've always believed that, well, everybody, of course, knew it was going to be a great thing to be independent from Britain. That's why we have the holiday. We all agree it's a great thing. Tell me about some of the opposition, though. Not everybody was on board with, with declaring our independence, were they? That's right. Uh, I think um, this is a really important uh, distinction to make, I think. And, and I think it's really important to go back and look at some of those things that we all today look back at fondly as everyone was just in agreement and they were all uh, along for the ride the entire time. I think we do this quite often with uh, looking back at the adoption of like the constitution, for example. Um, But this was also the case with, with independence itself. Uh, There were some notable figures, most notably a man named John Dickinson from Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin's uh, home uh, state or colony at the time. Um, and uh, his reasoning for this is actually, I think, quite sympathetic. Um, he was not willing to go to a costly and brutal and bloody war against the greatest empire on the earth unless every peaceful measure has been actually exhausted. Uh, and that is something that, you know, as someone like me, I'm, I'm <laughs> somewhat dovish in a lot of ways. Uh, that's something I can sympathize with. Now, the other founders, specifically John Adams, uh, Samuel Adams, uh, Richard Henry Lee that we spoke about last time, um, they said, no, the, the time for, for peaceful negotiation uh, has been exhausted. But uh, John Dickinson held out till the very end. And while I, I don't necessarily agree with his final um, final position on this issue, I do think it is a valid position to take, and it's one that should be reminded uh, even in our uh, political con, uh, context today whenever we're talking about issues of war and of peace, uh, even as something as important as independence back in 1776, uh, there was some hesitations based on this idea that war should be a last resort. And if it's not a last resort, if we're going in headstrong without exhaust, uh, without uh, exhausting every option, uh, then it's going to end up uh, much, much worse than, than what it would otherwise. Oh, I think that's wise. Now, were, was there anything that could have, have prevented the independence vote that's right. Well, uh, essentially, you know, there were uh, more more individuals than just John Dickinson who uh, were not keen on voting yes in favor of uh, in favor of separation. And, and one of those individuals uh, was from uh, Delaware, which at the time was <laughs> was uh, part of Pennsylvania. And whenever they declared their independence themselves, they declared their independence from both Pennsylvania and from Great Britain. Um, but uh, one individual that is often overlooked named Caesar Rodney actually came through uh, quite late in a less famous uh, midnight ride. We all know the <laughs> famed Paul Revere's midnight ride, but uh, Caesar Rodney had a midnight ride of his own where he rode throughout the night uh, on the eve of the vote of independence uh, because uh, in Delaware the vote was split. Uh, one yes, one no, and Caesar Rodney would have been the tiebreaker, and he t- uh, came in just in time 
to to save the vote. And I think that is one of those uh, moments of of heroics that is often overlooked uh, in the grand story because there are so many <laughs> so many instances of heroics throughout this time frame um, that uh, I, I think needs to be elevated uh, more so whenever we look back in our our national memory. Caleb, once the the vote was done, though, and once independence was declared, what was uh, what was it like for the founders afterwards? I mean, was every did, did everything just go hunky dory? They got together every July fourth and had beers and you know, celebrated, or <laughs> were, were there were there still uh, places where where maybe they didn't line up exactly? You know, I think independence is really a perfect example of what a, a successful movement looks like. The founders were by no no stretch of the imagination just this unified group of men who always agreed on everything. There were constant problems uh, before and after independence that persisted uh, throughout the early republic where they just couldn't agree on much. Um, and independence itself, I think, shows us as all, I think, all successful movements throughout American history show us that it's not a group of people who agree on everything that is the most successful. It's a group of people who agree on this one really important thing where they can uh, just agree to disagree on all these other issues where it might not be relevant at the time. But this one really important issue uh, at the time that was independence or if you go throughout uh, history, such as uh, the abolition movement, for example, or countless other successful movements throughout history, um, it's not uh, always uh, people who are lock-armed in unison uh, singing Kumbaya uh, who, who change the course of human history. It's, it's the people who look around, and I think there's some valuable lessons uh, that we can take in today. Uh, the people who look around and say, you know, I may not agree with you on much, but I agree with you on this very specific thing, and we can work together to accomplish that. No, I'm with you there. I, we, we, can, we can always find reasons to not be with them because they're, they're wrong on this or wrong on that. But uh, if we can come together on the, the parts that really matter, I think the, there's a great lesson in there for us. Caleb, tell people where they can find your podcast. Well, thanks, Brian. Uh, as always, it's always a, a pleasure to, to come on and chat with you about these uh, these fascinating stories. Um, my show, Profiles in Liberty, can be found anywhere where podcasts are. We are currently uh, two seasons out, and I'm working on the third season now. Um, so subscribe and, and be sure to come back for more. Okay. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks again, Caleb. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a special shout-out to my sponsors, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Now, Heather can help you if you live in the state of Utah or if you live in the state of Idaho. Bottom line is, if you are looking for a mortgage, she's the one you want to talk to. Let her and her team help you find the best loan at the best interest rate and, and best of all, 
in a timely fashion. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, go to 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You know, one of the biggest shames that I can think of is just the sheer number of people who have bought into the fiction that it's right and proper for some people to threaten or hurt other people in order to make them do what they want to do. Whether that's, you know, to give up part of their paycheck, to pay for, you know, this boondoggle or that boondoggle or, you know, whatever it may be. But it comes down to the idea that uh, there's this dependency on government. It's the primary way. we got to get things done. Well, let's turn it over to government. Government's going to get it done. And I think the, the disconnect here is there are lots of institutions in a healthy society, government being one of them. And, and believe it or not, I mean, don't, don't uh, die of shock when I tell you this. There is such a thing as good government. It's just rare. I mean, this is, this is like the unicorn, except uh, this is, it, it can actually exist. It just has to be very carefully limited, and it has to be restricted to a primary duty of protecting your God-given rights. Now, this was the founding philosophy. The founding fathers may not have marched in lockstep, but on this they were pretty clear. Government's job was to keep us free not to manage every little aspect of our lives and and worst of all you know it wasn't it wasn't to be used simply to punish whomever you disagreed with this is what we see today though and i think it's one of the reasons why we see such a, a concerted push wherever possible to use government power to either punish or to force people into doing things that they really don't want to do and primarily, it's along political lines. Well, you know, you're not one of this group, so we're going to force you because this group is now in power. So, Ken McManigal has a great explanation as to, to why you should have healthy skepticism. In fact, why you may even want to have a little bit of an aversion to government because what it does is it crushes individuality. I love how he puts this. Ken McManigal says, everyone has their own unique personal preferences. And this is probably a good thing since it makes life interesting and keeps us all from fighting over the exact same stuff. But he says, think how boring it would be if everyone preferred identical things. In other words, variety really is the spice of life. And as long as everyone remembers, their preferences are only preferences, not a matter of one being right and the other being wrong, well, then there's no problem. It's only when people try to impose their preferences on everyone that it becomes an issue. It's the difference between preferring the color yellow and forbidding the color blue, making the demand that everyone else pretend to prefer yellow or else. See, that's the difference between having your own individual preferences without acting like a tyrant or trying to control others. You can, you can guess which path politicians prefer. So he says, I I try not to mistake my personal preferences for an excuse to tell you what to do or not to do. It's why I can think abusing tobacco, alcohol, or other drugs is unhealthy and prefer that you not harm yourself with them without believing that it's ethical to allow government to have the illegitimate power to regulate it in any way, any of it. In other words, he's saying, live how you want, be who you are, but give others the same respect, and it's no one's business. Kent McManigal says, Forcing others to ignore their own preferences because they differ from yours 
is not right. It's the opposite of giving others the same respect you probably want from them. Stealing from others, attacking them, or forcing them to give you special treatment is the same. In such a case, you need to meet a stone wall of resistance until you back down and become civil. And as long as you don't try to use violence, neither the individual nor the collective violence of government, against those whose preferences preferences rather simply disagree with yours, well, there's no reason to stand up to you. But the moment you do, standing up against you is the right thing to do. He concludes by saying, if you're encouraging tax-funded government schools to manipulate the preferences of a generation of impressionable little kids against the wishes of their parents, you are imposing your preferences coercively, and you're on the wrong side, even if you're certain that your preferences are better. You're crushing their individuality and in the long run, making the future less free and less colorful than it could be. You certainly aren't helping the kids. I trust that, uh, you know, the the people who really need to hear this will hear this and understand it. This is one of the reasons why, you know, when, when parents speak up and say, you know what, I don't really like the idea. I'm not comfortable with the thought of my kid being taught, you know, whatever this may be, you know, whether it's uh, gender identity stuff or whether it's, uh, what do they call it now, uh, social, e- social emotional learning. It's just a new way of, of uh, kind of sugarcoating CRT or critical race theory in order to get it in front of these kids. And just because parents say, you know what, I'm not in favor of this, and they say, I want government to refrain from teaching my kids, especially in a government school classroom. And it's so funny to see how some will turn that around. Well, you're trying to engage in government censorship. You are trying to stop people from, from hearing ideas that you disagree with. See, I'm, I'm of the notion that uh, what it really needs to be is, you know, let people choose. But if you're going to have government-funded schools, and if, if the kids, you know, are, are a captive audience, at least to the extent that your state has, you know, compulsory education laws, it should probably stick to the basics of education and not to stray into indoctrination about correct attitudes and, you know, hey, we're going to save the, the planet now, and so these kids need to be indoctrinated into to climate change and make sure that that's a top priority for them. Look, if they want to become little climate warriors or little social justice warriors, that's fine. Let them do it on their own time. Let them do it on their, not, to, not the taxpayer's dime, but, you know, on their parents' dime. Anyway, this is one of the big divides that I see. I guess uh, I can I can throw this in there as well. You know, the right now there's there's a lot of people talking about well, you know, it uh, looks like Congress is passing bipartisan gun control stuff. And sure enough, yeah, politicians are doing exactly what politicians do. They say anything to get into power, they do anything to stay in power. And right now, I don't care how, you know, warm and fuzzy, you know, Mitt Romney, I'm looking your direction, how warm and fuzzy they make you feel with their pronouncements and their emoting and their stump speeches, they will gladly throw your rights right into the wood chipper whenever it suits them. This is one of the reasons why I just, you know, I, I tell you that I'm, I'm politically agnostic. I am atheistic when it comes to believing in politicians. I don't believe that they're actually, you know, people at least in the capacity of their jobs. I, I think they're, they're more like just a, 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 a fairy tale that I'd be better off ignoring. But it always comes back to, 
imposing preferences. So think about whatever piece of government policy is coming along and, you know, ask yourself, is this just imposing somebody's preferences or is this protecting people's God-given rights? And if it's just imposing preferences, even if most people agree, well, this is something we want, it doesn't make it right. I think we're coming up very fast on a time where people who are, are serious about claiming, using, and defending their rights are going to be forced to be in some very uncomfortable space, even more so than we have been in, in the last couple of years, in order to assert that right to live as a free man or woman. Yeah, our numbers are small. That makes it kind of daunting. It sure seems like a lot of people favor coercion over persuasion. But I'm utterly convinced If you are on the side of freedom, you are on the right side. Even if you are standing alone against the crowd, you're doing the right thing. So take courage. It really is the right thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome my friend Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute and probably the busiest guy that I know. Glad to have you on the show, Connor. <laughs> I don't know that that's a badge of honor, but thank you, Brian, nonetheless. <laughs> no, I listen, I have the deepest respect for you. I've, uh, I have seen you up close and personal and how hard you work. And I don't know that there's anybody that I know who works harder to promote the principles and the practices of freedom and your Tuttle Twins book series. Let's talk about that for just a second, because this was this was something that was beginning to take off about five years ago when when I was working with you. But holy cow, what has happened in the last five years? Well, I, I feel like our Tuttle Twins project is one of those things where when preparation meets opportunity, you know, we started this in 2014. It was just, hey, this would be a fun idea. Let's teach kids these, you know, principles. But uh, there wasn't any urgency behind it, I'll, I'll say. And so we were just doing, plodding along, having some fun. And then, my heavens, when 2020 hit, and all of a sudden every family is a homeschooling family for a few weeks. And when the authoritarianism just gets out of hand, suddenly families across the country are realizing what has happened to my country. What am I going to talk to my kids about? How am I going to help them understand what's, what's going on? What happened to the rights and the liberties that I long took for granted and suddenly they're under attack? What is going on? So there was just massive uncertainty. So our give you a little snapshot. From 2014 to 2019, so that's six years inclusive, we sold about 750,000 books. And we were just self-publishing. You know, we didn't have any big marketing budget behind it. It was just, you know, but that was a great thing. 750,000 books. We were having a lot of fun. In 2020 alone, we sold 1.3 million books, which is almost double what we did in the entire past six years. So that just gives you an indication of how things have just exploded. 2021, you know, was even uh, more, sold more books. So really, this has been something we've been at for a while. And suddenly the word has gotten out for all these families who are worried about what's going on. Here's how you can talk to your kids about it. Here's how you can understand as a family, have some rich, you know, meaningful conversations about the way the world works. Prep your kids for the world that, you know, is ever changing. 
and feel better and more confident as a parent that you're going to raise a well-rounded child. Well, it must be working because you've had some fairly high-profile uh, media outlets take a swat at you, which in turn only brings more attention to the books and, as I understand it, has actually sold more copies than you would have otherwise. Oh, CNN attacked us a few months ago, and, and right after it happened, sales were so strong. I, I posted <laughs> on social media, I said, does anyone have a contact at MSNBC so they can pile <laughs> on us as well? I, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, no, uh, it, it was great. They attacked us as being the leaders of a right-wing children's uh, entertainment complex, they called it, um, pushing back on this, this idea of literal indoctrination that they dismissed out of hand. Oh, there's no such thing. These, these right-wingers are up in the night. We're not trying to come after your kids. We're not talking to them about anti-racism and gender and trans everything. And, right. you know, well, of course they are. And, uh, and that's why a lot of parents are concerned. And then they turn to the Tuttle Twins. We're ready to help. Talk to me about the new book that is coming out, America's History, a Tuttle Twins series of stories. What's, what's the scoop there? So about two years ago, I was in a meeting with, uh, so I run a think tank in Utah, Libertas Institute, you've mentioned, but I was in a meeting with other uh, executives and leaders of different uh, think tanks and organizations across the country who are um, trying to help kids, trying to teach the rising generation. And the purpose of the meeting was, okay, let's focus just on history, social studies. How are we doing? How are things going? What can we do? And nothing really came out of the meeting, but I, but I felt, you know, this desire to like look into it more because I felt unsettled. Critical race theory was on the rise, 1619 project, all this stuff is out there. So I went on Amazon and eBay and I bought like a dozen social studies books to try to more deeply understand how are they talking about the constitution, the revolution, all those kind of early American colonial things. I wanted to better understand because, you know, I grew up, you know, two decades ago when I went through that. So I'm reading all these books. And as you might imagine, they all talk about all of the, you know, who said what to whom and what date this battle happened and who fought who and all the what I call superficial history, right? Uh, where these books consistently failed was teaching what I'll call the substantive history, not just what happened, but why it happened. Right. And more importantly, what were the ideas in play that led these people to sacrifice you know, blood and treasure to take on the biggest government in the world. Brian, you're very familiar with this quote. I'm sure most of your listeners are as well, that those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And we all know this quote and we nod our head. Oh, yeah, I know that quote. But we suck collectively at teaching kids to learn from history. These books that I bought that are being used in all the schools across the country, they're not teaching kids to learn from the past. They're teaching kids about the past, and that is a critical distinction. So we decided that we were going to do a book, we were going to do a history book, and more importantly, in addition to teaching what happened and all the things that you do in a history book, we are going to focus on why these things happened and what are the ideas that we can learn from so that young readers suddenly understand why things that happened two and a half centuries ago are relevant to their lives today and how we can learn from those events and experiences to make our world a better place. So that's the new history book that we've launched. It's first in a series that we hope to do of four books, but uh, that's the problem we're trying to solve is not just to teach about the past, but to help kids learn from the past so that we can break this cycle of supporting big government and socialism and so forth because people don't understand and learn from 
the mistakes of the past. Connor, talk to me about how, even though this book may be targeting, you know, readers between 7 and 13 years of age, what kind of effect does it have on other members of the family as they delve into this book? (laughs) Well, this was accidental. When we started doing the Teletons book, we thought we were doing children's books. What we didn't realize is that we were doing books for the whole family, that in many cases, the parents never learned these ideas themselves in school, or they didn't really understand them, or it was never taught in the right way. So we get every day emails from parents saying, I now understand economics. I thought it was like irrelevant and boring, but now it makes total sense. And I understand it. Or, you know, I understand what my rights are. No one ever explained it this way. So we're getting mom and dad because we're doing this in a fun, simple way that the whole family can learn together, read a story together. We're educating the whole family. So so this history book in particular, you know, it's targeted towards 7 to 13. That's kind of the sweet spot we're going for. But with all the early kind of testing we've done, we gave out a whole bunch of early copies to different families to review and to test the book. The whole family uh, is reading these together every night at dinner or whatever, right? They're reading a chapter. They're talking about it. We have discussion questions and all kinds of things to prompt like meaningful uh, conversation in the family about what happened and what we can learn from it. So really the Tuttle Twins I think is meant more as a family experience. Um, But, you know, certainly a kid can pick it up and just read the whole thing on their own. But the magic happens when siblings and parents, they're all on the same page talking about these ideas together. Well, I think you were the one who first introduced me to the idea that it's tough as an adult to unlearn all the things, the, the, the mistakes and mistruths or half-truths we were taught as, as kids. Whereas if you can get these things straight in a kid's mind early on, I mean, they're going to grow up pretty rock solid in understanding how the world works. That, that's exactly right. It's better to uh, build a strong foundation rather than uh, having to repair a weak one you know, much later. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start early. A lot of people say, no, why do we talk to kids this, this young? Let them be kids. You know, let's talk about this with them when they're teenagers or adults. And I say, what you don't realize is your kids are being bombarded with ideas from teachers, textbooks, TikTok, all the rest, right? You got to realize that the world we're in, they're getting messages elsewhere that you likely fundamentally disagree with. And so it's critical that parents be intentional about making sure that they're talking to their kids about these ideas. Now, a lot of families will do a great job religiously, like they'll take their kids to Sunday school or read the Bible or whatever they do to talk about their religious values and share those with their children. Too many families don't think about doing that for their political and their economic values. And so they just send their kids out in the world to be you know, subjected to all these influences that they disagree with. All we're after with the Tuttle Twins is intentionality. We're saying, hey, mom, hey, dad, Let's just have some conversations with your kids. We'll do it in an age-appropriate way. We use storytelling for everything. So this history book, it's just one big story from beginning to end. It's all narrative. It's all a fun story and adventure. And so none of it is textbook form. We're not sitting down and saying, on what day did this happen? And who's <laughs> like, we, we all hate to learn that way. We, we as humans, we love stories. That's how we're doing it with this new book. And that's where the magic happens because suddenly it comes alive for kids and they show interest in things that in school or otherwise they would probably be disinterested in. With the Tuttle Twins, we got some sweet magic sauce that makes this come alive, and that's where parents show so much interest and value in using these materials to help their kids and, frankly, themselves as parents to better understand these ideas. Okay, we've got about 20 seconds here, Connor. Where can people pre-order this book? 
So we're launching 4th of July, coming up pretty soon. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, plus a bunch of bonuses we have, curriculum and videos and the audiobook, you're going to want to head to TuttleTwins.com slash history. Very good. Connor Boyack, keep up the great work, and uh, happy Independence Day. You too. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And a special shout out to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit the website at DixieChiro.com. Look, if you or someone you know is dealing with pain, and I mean ongoing pain, it could be from car accident injuries, maybe you have bulging, herniated discs in your back, or you're dealing with neuropathy, you should talk to Dr. Wagner. He comes very highly recommended. My friends in southern Utah who have seen Dr. Wagner, I've heard more than one use the term miracle worker. And these are not people prone to uh, exaggeration. So maybe see if uh, Dr. Wagner and his staff at Dixie Chiropractic have what you need. Again, the website is DixieCairo.com. Sure appreciate Dr. Wagner being a sponsor. And if, uh, if you or someone you love is dealing with pain, this is the guy who can help you. So I don't know if you've heard the, the name Cole Summers. Now, if you don't know his story, this is a story worth knowing. Got an article here from Hannah Frankman from the Foundation for Economic Education. And it's the story of an unschooler, an entrepreneur, and a prodigy by the name of Cole Summers. Now, that's a pseudonym. His actual name is Kevin Cooper. But he wrote a book called Don't Tell Me I Can't. And this is a book that uh, really deserves a place in the alternative education canon. Hannah Frankman says, Kevin Cooper, known to the Internet as Cole Summers, was taken from this world far too soon. He actually, he tragically died on June 11th in a kayaking accident. But in his 14 years of life, oh, I forgot to mention, he's, he was 14 years old. He accomplished more than most of us do in a lifetime. Now listen to this kid's story. At age six, his parents handed him the reins to his own education. They gave him the freedom to choose what he wanted to study. He chose to watch Warren Buffett videos on YouTube because he wanted to learn how to get rich. So at age seven, he started his own business, breeding meat rabbits and selling them to restaurants. He set up a corporation at age seven and became the majority shareholder, just like a Silicon Valley startup. At age eight, he got his first truck through trade with a neighbor and discovered that an eight-year-old can, in fact, get a vehicle titled in their name. At age nine, he bought a 350-acre ranch for $130 an acre to expand his business into breeding meat goats. At age 10, he bought a house, which he then renovated and sold for a profit. He learned flooring, roofing, cabinet making, painting, and electrical work, again, from YouTube. At age 14, he wrote an autobiography about his education called Don't Tell Me I Can't, a fitting title for what's essentially an ode to kids pushing the limits of what adults think is possible. Hannah Frankman says, Kevin Cooper was the most ambitious and inspiring unschooler I've ever met. 
In fact, she says, I found Kevin on Twitter this past spring, and I knew immediately he was an unschooling legend in the making. He was successfully running a holding company controlling multiple LLCs, one for his rabbitry and another for his properties. He was helping support his disabled parents and brother. He was working on a plan to tackle the environmental problems of industrial hay farming and aquifer depletion, which were threatening to make the valley where he grew up uninhabitable. He was an unschooling success story, an alternative education inspiration, a shining example of what it's possible for kids to accomplish. At age 14, he had already done more for education than many education professionals do in their entire lives, just by being living proof of how far someone can go when they let their interests drive their education. That's what Kevin's book is all about. Hannah Frankman says, I started reading Don't Tell Me I Can't when I was waiting for a takeout order. And I imagined I would read the introduction while I waited for my food and then go home. But she says, instead, I ended up sitting at the restaurant counter reading the entire book cover to cover while my food grew cold, much to the amusement of the waitstaff. I was captivated. She says, Kevin's book was the most compelling story of homeschool possibility I had ever read. Kevin wrote in his introduction, quote, Like every other kid, I've had, a, I've had people tell me I can't do something because I'm just a kid. This silly adult idea that being young makes us incapable and incompetent has discouraged so many kids from learning what they're capable of and pursuing their dreams. But one of the biggest blessings in my life has been that every time I've heard that nonsense said to me, I can be sure of two things. First, it's never my parents that said it. Second, my parents will not only allow me to work to prove whoever said it was wrong, but they encourage me to do so. End quote. So Kevin's book is an argument for kids, or for letting kids, rather, drive their own education and letting them tackle life head-on in any arena they find interesting. And his own story is proof that it works. From first grade on, Kevin's education was built around what he was interested in. First, he wanted to know how people make money. After he and his dad started listening to Warren Buffett videos, they pivoted into mental models and learning how to think. And when he wanted to try making money for himself, he convinced his parents to let him start his rabbit farm, and he learned about business and math through bookkeeping and setting up his business's legal entity. After paying taxes for the first time, Kevin heard about Amazon's $0 tax bill and decided he wanted to learn about corporate tax law for fifth grade math so he could learn how to pay no taxes too. That was the first time he realized he was different. From his book, quote, on the ride to Cub Scouts one time, my friends started talking about what they were doing in school. They were all joking around about having to memorize the names of all the plants, or the planets, rather, in order. My friend Michael said, it's stupid. Like, when will I ever need to know that? Then they asked me what I was studying. I started talking about how companies can pay certain expenses like payroll in stock, creating paper losses that reduce their taxes and maybe even create net loss carry forward. Wow, the looks I got from everyone. They told me they had no clue what I was talking about. I just shrugged it off and said, yeah, I'm weird. But I was confused. I still thought back then that they did all the same stuff I did. End quote. Now this stark difference in Kevin's education is what led to his extraordinary life. Because he was free to chase the things he cared about, he was able to achieve outcomes far beyond what most people think is possible for somebody who's just a kid. Kevin's book was released in May of this year. Less than a month later, 
the world lost more than we'll likely ever know. Kevin was a giant in the making. He would have accomplished feats on a geographic scale, like reversing the disappearance of the Great Basin Desert's supplying aquifer. He had ambitions to spearhead environmental change and advocate for, advocate for unschooling, so more kids could be set free to chase their passions like he was, an endeavor his parents planned to carry on as they shared when they broke the news of Kevin's heartbreaking, untimely death. So Kevin's book deserves a place in the unschooling and alternative education canon, an honest and beautiful case study of what's possible when parents trust their kids and when kids let their passions become the driving force of their education. See, I hadn't even heard of Kevin until yesterday. I hadn't heard of Cole Summers until yesterday. And now I'm just kicking myself for not having followed this young man sooner. What an amazing story. And I want to contrast this with a young man that I just heard about uh, also just within the last couple of days. This is a young man who goes to school in Boise, Idaho, who wants to run for his uh, school district's school board or board of trustees, rather. And look, he's a good kid. He, he is, he's a kid who's very involved in a lot of things, but a very, very different approach because that kid is more in, in He's more driven by the idea that I want to get power. I want to have a seat at the table. I want decision-making authority, and I'm speaking for the students. And, of course, he's, he's hitting all the right social justice points. He wants, you know, mental health for, for the students in the form of, you know, social-emotional learning. He's calling for solidarity for gun control, just like David Hogg did, you know, after the Parkland shootings. He's, uh, he's very environmentally driven. Everything's about climate change and getting kids trained to believe in, our, in the greatest crisis of our time. Just kind of an interesting contrast to, uh, to the Cole Summers approach, which has become the best person that you can be, learn the things you need to learn to truly unleash your potential, as opposed to simply, I want to get power. I don't want to have the power to to implement the right kinds, meaning in this case, left wing, you know, pet policies. And of course, you know, describe anybody who disagrees with me as an extremist. Kind of interesting. I think in both cases, you're dealing with some good kids. Well, let me put it this way. The kid who wants to run for the, the school board of trustees, he is a good kid. And I hope he can, I hope he can gain enough wisdom to recognize the difference between good policy and bad policy. But isn't it interesting to contrast him with a truly great kid who died at 14 years old and yet was able to accomplish things that, man, I'll tell you, as an adult, I've been working on stuff for a long time. I'm not even close. I'm so far in his dust, I can't even see (laughs) anymore. Anyway, it's a very inspiring story, unfortunately, with one with a tragic end. But it's one that uh, you should probably check out. Got a link to uh, Hannah Frankman's article in my show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. 
I hope you came prepared to do a little wrong think today. You know, it's not only uh, easy to do, but it's also very refreshing. Groupthink is so highly overrated, basically it amounts to chanting in unison with whatever's popular at the moment. Wrongthink is going to require something a little bit more of you in the sense that you got to be willing to stand up and really question, what do I know? What do I really know that wasn't told to me by somebody else? But the good news is once you have uh, acquired a, a taste for wrongthink, it's hard to settle for anything else. And you will question narratives and you will question official pronouncements. And you'll find great satisfaction in being able to see the world as it is and to have a much closer relationship with truth than those who just passively absorb whatever's coming at them out of the screen that's in their hand at the moment. By the way, I want to give a shout-out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They actually have a physical store located in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. Very good business for anyone who is interested in the least in sewing or embroidery or quilting. Not only the very best machines, starting from entry-level machines right up to the very high-end long-arm quilting machines, but also the expertise to service those machines, keep them running. They will actually offer you free classes when you buy a sewing machine or an embroidery machine or a long-arm quilting machine. They will teach you how to use it to its utmost. And, of course, all the supplies that go with it, they'll service your machines. I think I mentioned that. Nonetheless, it's uh, sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Please feel free to do business with them. Even if you don't live in St. George, Utah, if you're anywhere within a couple hundred miles, it's worth your time to visit them. You know, some of us simply refuse to go along with what those in power uh, have come to refer to as normalizing the new normal. And, you know, this is not for everybody. In fact, for a lot of people, it's just too uncomfortable because they're going to be out of step with, with others. Well, I got an article here from Todd Hyen. And this is some timely encouragement with anybody who has made peace with the concept of being an outlier. Now, he's a psychotherapist, and he says, you know, for something to be a new normal, it has to reach some measure of consensual normalcy. Now, what is normalcy? Well, many people believe it's whatever sits at the middle of the proverbial bell curve. In other words, what the majority thinks. But is this true? He says, in my practice as a psychotherapist, I'm very uncomfortable when a client asks if their behavior is normal. In fact, he usually replies, well, it is probably the most common behavior. Or he gives them the negative response, well, you might be an outlier, and not many out there behave that particular way. Now, that response is never very satisfying. People, it seems, equate normal with what most people are doing. Now, obviously, this analysis is not very accurate. How many times did you hear your dear mother say, if all your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you do it? So all that being said, he says, I'm afraid to say now that in our culture, being normal means you are doing what most everyone else is doing or thinking. So today, if you are normal, you wear masks everywhere or normal if you fear COVID and scramble to get in line for the latest booster. Now, at first, there might be a bit of an enticement. You will die of COVID if you don't get vaccinated. But he says if you really examine the true incentive, it usually isn't that. It's the fact that everyone else or most everyone else is conforming. And once you reach that point of conformity or normalcy, there isn't much else you need to do if you are an authority trying to pressure people into compliance. In fact, it can often work against that authority. 
getting people through a coercive fear campaign to comply because it can then become impossible to get the masses, these masses, to let go of the thing that makes them feel normal. In other words, compliance with the majority. So as an example, even today as authorities remove mask mandates, people are opting to ignore the relaxation of mask compliance and deciding on their own or within their organization, such as a hospital, to continue requiring them. I mean, just as an aside, look at virtually every press conference or every, you know, uh, every public appearance that Joe Biden does, and you'll notice everybody is dutifully masked up. Even the president is masked up. Although when he wants to talk to somebody, he'll lean in close and pull down his mask so he can talk to him. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but there's that appearance, and it's just, look, everybody else is doing it. And again, I think it really comes down to it's it's a signal for compliance, and a, uh, it's more of a signal, a virtue signal, if you will, of this is what every pe- everybody who's good should be doing. All right, back to the article here. Todd Hyen says, There are many things in our culture that have become normal in previous years or decades or even centuries that were not normal. We're continuously experiencing a wave of abnormal or non-existent to normal flowing over us as the years pass. Things that were not consensual or embraced by the majority did not become normal until they were. The first example, he says, that comes to mind are cell phones, or more accurately, personal mobile phones. He says, now I remember while living in L.A. in the Hollywood film biz, it was very trendy to have a phone in your car. Typically, only doctors or bigwig professionals had such things. They became more and more popular for various reasons over time and then reached a level of normalcy when nearly everyone had a cell phone they carried around with them. Now, we can, of course, think of thousands of things like this. We can also think of an equal number of things that were better before and, for whatever reason, lost normalcy due to economics or difficulty of installation or execution, like bottled in glass bottles, milk being personally delivered to your front porch every morning or real wood hardwood floors. Now, those are examples of things, but what about concepts or psychological behaviors? Yes, these also move in and out of what is considered normal. But he says, keep in mind, as I said before, normal doesn't mean right or healthy. Far from it. The non-matrixed people living underground in the matrix were abnormal to all of the matrixed people. But they they were most psychologically healthy, or actually, to be more accurate, spiritually healthy. So we may see today many things we're not happy about becoming normal, things like masks or vaccination records, mandates, which we'll discuss in a moment. But he says the real damage we are and will experience is not so much the physical aspects to these things, but the psychological and spiritual implications. We focus on the physical issues, which are also important and need to be factored in our fight for freedom. But the physical is easier to deal with It's your face and objectively problematic brain damage due to too much CO2 intake, the loss of freedoms to a totalitarian regime, restrictions on travel, loss of privacy, medical tyranny, etc. And the deeper issues of this assault on humanity are far more devastating, works its evil over time, and is much more difficult to see. So what we've observed in our culture that before COVID didn't exist Or what have we observed that didn't exist before and now does in large numbers? Things that the normies could start to identify as normal. Well, he says mask wearing is probably the most obvious. 
and possibly the least obvious from a damaging psychological and spiritual perspective. Digital IDs for which we're being prepped from this COVID fiasco to be totally accepted and normalized. Digital currency is another, and its prep started long ago, but the mill has been greased even further for normal, easy insertion into our culture and society. Online learning, which is clearly a trend with all levels of education. Online work is becoming more and more common, and therefore is being normalized. In fact, any sort of gathering now seems to be relegated to a Zoom session, destroying any psychological and spiritual need to touch shoulder-to-shoulder with other human beings, physically look into their eyes rather than looking into a camera that then creates a digital representation of an eye to gaze into. Vaccines and vaccine passports have been normalized even further, of course. Not that it took all that much, as culture has long been brainwashed into thinking that all the vaccines children get are the only thing that keeps them alive through childhood, and anyone who opposes such practice is tantamount to Beelzebub himself. He says the more subtle normalties being afflicted upon us include a general fear of nature and our natural environment. Children are clearly being taught to fear other children, teachers, and anyone who is not masked. We're being trained to believe that fear, that to fear life itself is normal. And certainly a totally irrational fear of death is being made normal. And slowly we're being introduced to the normal idea that, quite possibly, if we play our cards right and support the efforts to do such a thing, technology will bring us a deathless experience of life. Now, he says, why anyone would want that to be normal is beyond me. But it certainly is being actively promoted out there as if the true meaning of life lies in some artificial and technological way to keep life eternal. Interesting. Now, he says, as usual with a short article like this, I'm just skimming the surface of this dark, hideous creature raising its head out of the muck of the human shadow. The problem here, though, is this normalcy I'm speaking of is being forced upon us in a not natural, organic way. We'll come back to his commentary in just a few moments, but if you're somebody who's finding it hard to embrace the new normal, look at this. You're not alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I have some more from this great commentary from Todd Hyen, who is a psychotherapist. This is from OffGuardian.org, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. I do want to give a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com and just remind you that uh, the other precious metals, you know, if you're looking for a place to to, uh, park your money that doesn't lose value, yes, gold and silver are good ways to go. Palladium, yes. Platinum, absolutely. Lead, copper, and brass, also not a bad place to go. HSL Ammo can help you with that. Just go to the website link that I include in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. That's hslammo.com. So back to this uh, idea of normalizing the new normal. And psychotherapist Todd Hyen says, the, the problem that we see is that the new normal is being forced upon us. It's not happening in some natural, organic way. He says humans have always gone through weird ventures and into strangeness, but typically they'll pull out at some point going, whoops, that didn't work. What was I thinking? But only if the venture was organic 
psychically evolutionary. In other words, it's a wrong turn corrected in the nick of time. But what we're experiencing now, which we've experienced to a limited degree in the past, with odd experiments like Nazism or Soviet Marxist communism or other totalitarian experiments, is purely manipulative from a global point of reference. And this is from a global point of reference that has never happened before. He says, we're being conned to believe these things I've described here are normal only because they're consensual. Only until a majority agree they are normal are they, are they declared normal. But these things are not normal. They go against the fabric of nature, of spirit. And if you believe in such things, God himself. We seem to have lost sight of this measure of normalcy. And we only see normal as majority and thus believe it's simply no big deal, which is something you hear all the time about, say, wearing masks or being educated by a computer screen at home. Just put on the damn mask. What's the big deal? Well, actually, it's a big enough deal to lead us to the eventual destruction of humanity. No kidding. Although the most, uh, most people grow tiresome of Nazi references in discussions of new normal issues, he says National Socialism in Germany in the mid-1900s continues to be a relevant and useful comparison. In Peter Fritsche's book, Hitler's First Hundred Days, he describes a later manifestation of Germany's new Hitler order, the Third Reich. Here is a description of a dissident returning home from political prison and the subsequent treatment he receives. Quote, the big fight that social democrats and communists lost to the national socialists or Nazis in February and March was one in which the nation was bitterly divided. The prisoners who returned home at the end of 1933 took the measure of how quickly Germany had changed from a country of highly artistic partisans, articulate partisans who flew flags and pinned on badges of allegiance into a country of believers and conformists who, for various reasons that were not always clear or verifiable, had made their peace with the new regime. This was the Nazis' achievement in the two short months between the Reichstag elections on March 5th of 1933 and the day celebrating German labor on May 1st. The 48% who had not voted for Hitler almost entirely disappeared from view. Its remnants treated as miscreants and asocials, agents of national and social corrosion, drowned rats in the sea. End quote. Kind of sounds like what the January 6th committee is trying to do. Maybe there's a very apt Reichstag fire comparison with January 6th and what happened in February of 1933 in Weimar, Germany. Anyway, back to the article. He says, the point to be taken here is the psychological effect of mass formation psychosis. A people who before were articulate and probably capable of debate and critical thinking to a people who were essentially brain dead and in 100% compliance with the authority of National Socialism and all manner of supporting or living within that regime, has been declared normal. And he says it's interesting to note that the 48% who did not vote for Hitler almost entirely disappeared from view. Where had they gone? Well, he says we like to think in our current situation that we who call ourselves freedom fighters will never disappear, but can we really rely on that? Will many of us eventually conform, or will we eventually fall into the zombie state? He says, I, for one, and I'm certain there are many who would stand with me on this, plan to die on this hill. 
But can we really be so certain that we will not eventually fall victim to the status quo, to the new world normalcy, and be absorbed by the system and become drowned rats in the sea? He says, I shudder to think of such a thing. But most of us are familiar with Stockholm Syndrome, where prisoners become complacent and actually ally with their captors and criminal perpetrators. This phenomenon is a very deep-seated human compulsion based on our instinct for survival. When we see all hope disappear, we will naturally warm up to those who hold the power and resources to keep us alive. He says, I think of movies like The Matrix and even silly fare like Demolition Man where there's a thriving underground of free people burdened to the brink of collapse with the pressure of survival. Living almost like animals, usually underground, like a collective unconscious, and certainly not considered normal. Todd Hyen says, is this even a possibility within the limitations of the instinctual drive to survive? Well, he says it's difficult to tell. There was indeed a resistance to the Nazis in the 30s and 40s, and it may have been small, but it definitely was there. And he says, I believe that there is at least an equally powerful archetypical compulsion to be free or die. However, he says, it seems this archetype, if pressured enough, falls short. I suppose we have yet to see how it will fare while facing this current assault on the human spirit. I don't know why, but this one hit me pretty hard. And maybe it's because I'm I'm definitely one of those people who is not going to assimilate into the new normal. And I love the fact that he pointed out it's not just a matter of, you know, just convenience. As I was mentioning yesterday, when when the first real push to, to wear the mask came along, there was something in my conscience that was like, ooh, this is not right. And and I caught a lot of heat over that, you know, for I think I think the, the place I felt it most keenly wasn't walking through the grocery store, or, you know, other public places where everybody seemed to be masked up. The place where I felt it the most was sitting in church. I mean, we went through a long period where, OK, nobody can go to church because, you know, the danger from the pandemic. And then when church finally did open up, I mean, I was I was among those who was most grateful to be able to back, go back and fellowship with people eye to eye. And to to actually, you know, enjoy their company. And I understand, you know, the masks were a big part of it. And and so we disinfect the chapel after each and every service. And everybody's separated. And nobody, you know, I mean, some places they told you you can't even sing because it may spread the virus. But I could not bring myself to put on the mask to go into church. And that oftentimes meant that I was one of maybe two or three people at most not wearing a mask in a whole congregation full of people. And yeah, it was uncomfortable. So much so that I I took to, well, I'll sit in the very back of the chapel so I don't have to afflict people and make them feel uncomfortable. You could you could see the discomfort in people's eyes. You could see the fear and the questioning. And and it wasn't even so much the fear of, oh, you're gonna get me sick. It was more like the fear of Brother Hyde, you've lost your faith. <laughs> you're not you're not doing the new normal here. But it was never a matter of, well, I'm better than you or I I am smarter than you. It was a matter of my conscience wouldn't let me go along with what everybody else was doing. And trust me, it would have been so much easier to just do it. To just blend in with the crowd and and be grateful for the chance to to rub shoulders with everybody. I mean, we had people who literally would stand up and, and preach from the pulpit against people who weren't masking up. That was hard. 
not to take that personal. But in matters of conscience, you know, this is where you kind of find out what you're made of. And by the way, my deepest respect for those uh, those few souls who, like me, said, yeah, this mask isn't going to fit over my conscience either. I guess the bottom line is there are a lot of places right now where things are being normalized, where you and I have to deal with our conscience and decide whether we'll go along. Stand firm. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I've been keeping tabs on uh, on a lot of the uh, goings-on around the country and actually around the globe pertaining to the food supply. What I see is not terribly encouraging, at least in the sense that it looks like we could really see some hardship, and I mean worldwide hardship related to food and the distribution of food. So I'm encouraging everybody that I know, everybody within the sound of my voice, please consider having some preparations in place, having some store of food that you can turn to if things were to get tough. If things don't get tough, you, you still have food that you can use. It's there to last you for as long as you need it, but better to have it and not need it than the other way around. To that end, I encourage you, please click on the link I provide under my sponsors for lifesavingfood.com. You'll know what to do from there. So a couple quick things here I wanted to mention. I know that uh, most of us are familiar with the fact that, oh, yeah, there's a lot of content moderation going on on Twitter, on Facebook, and other places. You say the wrong thing or suggest the wrong thing or support the wrong ideas, and, yeah, they will definitely, you know, shadow ban you or maybe outright ban you. But here's kind of a weird development. I just saw this article yesterday. Um, Look, Silicon Valley has been acting as kind of a ministry of truth, right? They tell us what's, what's okay and what isn't. Everything that comes up, you know, that questions the official narrative. Oh, look, a fact checker says, uh, you may not want to believe this. Are you sure you want to go to this article? <laughs> Are you sure you want to read this for yourself? Yeah. But why on earth would Twitter be hiring an astonishing number of FBI agents right now? This is an article from mintpressnews.com. The title is F- The Federal Bureau of Treats Twitter's Hiring an Alarming Number of FBI Agents. And it says Twitter's been on a recruitment drive of late, hiring a host of former feds and spies, studying a number of employment and recruitment websites. Mint Press has ascertained that the social media giant has, in recent years, recruited dozens of individuals from the national security state to work in the fields of security, trust, safety, and content. I mean, that kind of underscores the idea that maybe there's some kind of a of an alliance or a partnership between big tech and big government. Chief amongst these is the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Now, the author here, Alan McLeod, says, the FBI is generally known as a domestic security and intelligence force. However, it has recently expanded its remit into cyberspace. The FBI's investigative authority is the broadest of all federal law enforcement agencies. The About section of its website informs readers the FBI has divided its investigations into a number of programs, such as domestic and international terrorism, foreign counterintelligence, and cybercrime. 
And then they go through and they list a number of individuals, and these are fairly high-profile former FBI individuals who have been recruited by Twitter as well as other Silicon Valley uh, entities. Now, this is, uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to spin some some sort of, uh, you know, conspiracy here. But you do have to wonder, why would there be such an interest in these government spooks becoming a part of organizations like Twitter? As the author here points out, Twitter has certainly endorsed the FBI as a credible actor, allowing the organization to play a part in regulating the global dissemination of information on its platform. Back in September of 2020, it put out a statement thanking the federal agency. We wish to express our gratitude to the FBI's Foreign Influence Task Force for their close collaboration and continued support of our work to protect the public conversation at this critical time. Okay, I don't mean to be rude, but uh, I don't trust the FBI. I think it's one of the most politicized law enforcement agencies on the planet, probably right up there and comparable to the Russian KGB. And I think right now we're seeing that the FBI has been weaponized to the extent that it's an arm of the Democratic Party and is used to go after anyone who threatens Democratic supremacy. A little bit spooky. Anyway, it's a great article. It goes into a lot of detail, and it it doesn't necessarily say there's this huge conspiracy going on. It's just pointing out some things that raise some interesting questions and make you wonder, is there a problem here? You have to wonder, why are there so many former government employees, spooks particularly, that are going to work for organizations like Twitter? And it's not just Twitter. There are other social media giants that that likewise are recruiting. The bottom line here is social media holds enormous influence in today's society. And while this article is not alleging that anyone mentioned is a bad actor or doesn't genuinely care about the spread of disinformation, it's highlighting a glaring conflict of interest. Through its agencies, the U.S. government regularly plants fake news and false information. And look, in the case of the FBI, just as an aside... It's also a great source of false flag operations or, or plots that the FBI comes up with and then sends agents provocateur or informants out to, to try to fish and sniff and troll for people who will nod at the right time so that they can bag them on a conspiracy charge. Wow, well, we have, you know, we stopped this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, which it then turns out, well, that was a plot that was entirely of your own creation. You just were going around looking for anybody dumb enough to nod their head. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Big difference between actually stopping a plot and then starting one and then claiming that, hey, look, I saved you from this. Like the article says, social media hiring individuals straight from the FBI, CIA, NATO, and other groups to work on regulating disinformation is a fundamentally flawed practice. One of media's primary functions is to serve as a fourth estate, a force that works to hold government and its agencies to account. Yet instead of doing that, increasingly it's collaborating with them. Such are these increasing interlocking connections that it's becoming very difficult to see where big government ends and big media begins. Again, this is from Alan McLeod, senior staff writer for Mint Press News. I've got a link to it in the show notes. Strongly encourage you to take a look at it. Also, 
I'm just going to touch on this one just quickly. Uh, this was from naturalnews.com, but um, very detailed information about how many rounds of 223 caliber ammunition the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is right now in the process of purchasing for immigrations and custom enforcement has been deliberately hidden from public view. Now, they actually link to the document, which blacks out with a marker that indicates, you know, how many quantities of ammunition have been purchased. But know this. This has been documented. Within the past six months, the Department of Homeland Security has stockpiled more than a billion rounds of ammo in order to fight homegrown terrorism. And when you couple that with the idea that uh, they've also been stocking up on riot gear, military gear, storable food, in fact, what was the, oh, here, here it is. The redacted document states that full and open competition was not involved with this particular government purchase, and the reason for this was because of a, quote, unusual and compelling urgency. But the document doesn't state the precise nature of or reason for this dubious urgency, or even what that means. What exactly is our government preparing for? Why is the IRS, among other people, stockpiling ammo as well? You put the pieces together, and and it sure appears that the powers running the federal government are preparing for war, though not necessarily with terrorists or foreign powers, but rather with the American people. Could it be that all the ammo purchases and preparatory work for sheltering and processing human beings is part of a larger covert plan to enslave Americans under a dictatorship or perhaps to to clamp down on widespread unrest? Oh, I know, that's a, that's a scary proposition. Nonetheless, these are the kind of questions that need to be asked. So if, if that gives you an uneasy feeling in your stomach, sorry, but I'd rather somebody ask this question now than we start asking it when people show up on your doorstep and telling you, come with us. We're taking you somewhere for your safety. Yeah, I don't know what the future brings. There are some really interesting and somewhat scary developments. I do know this. Each of us has the capacity to prepare ourselves, starting with our character, starting with the kind of individual that we are going to be, and uh, moving from there into, you know, having some some basic uh, physical preparations as well. I don't think you can be perfectly prepared for every single emergency. But I think we need to have more of that uh, self-reliance mindset. Less of a tendency to turn to government and plead, please do something, save me. And more of an attitude of, I don't need what you're offering. Go peddle that horse crap somewhere else. I know it may sound harsh, but I guess I'm just not altogether convinced that the folks who are operating at the federal level, be it elected or unelected officials, uh, I don't think they have my best interest in mind. So whatever it is they're offering me, I will politely decline. That is, if they allow me to politely decline. Otherwise, I will simply decline and perhaps forcefully decline. But the answer is no, I don't need what you're selling. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Final segment of the show today. 
thought we could spend a little bit of time talking about uh, where do the social justice warriors come from. I'm convinced they're not born. I think they are created. Actually, I think, let me put it differently. I believe social justice warriors are groomed, recruited, and radicalized. Which means uh, you got to, where, where would that be taking place? Well, it used to be on the nation's college campuses. More and more, we're starting to see that grooming, that recruitment, and radicalization taking place right within our public schools. Now, this is not a blanket condemnation of every teacher out there. There are some great teachers who don't buy into that nonsense for a moment. At the same time, within the system, there are teachers who are very clearly engaging in activist activities and, and very proud of it. Robert Weisberg has a great explanation of who exactly is manufacturing social justice warriors on an industrial scale. He says, for over half a century, American institutions of higher education have been guilty of promoting oikophobia, that's hatred of one's own people, and more generally, Western civilization. Instruction initially occurred only in traditional academic disciplines like English and sociology, where youngsters learned about America's racism, sexism, and multiple other sins. Within a few years, though, America bashing had its very own departments, notably women's studies, black studies, and other grievance studies departments. Now, he says, remarkably, despite the plain-to-see pernicious impact of this education, it continues to thrive and expand. America-hating academics resemble drug addicts unable to achieve highs from the original dose and thus must move on to ever-larger amounts. At some point, alas, this addictive pursuit may prove fatal, and the same may be true in education as our schools continue to demonize America. The latest installment of this national suicide-on-the-installment urge is the burgeoning field of social justice as a separate academic major. Now, this is not just sneaking in some criticism of America's in, in a traditional history course, nor some freshman orientation lecture to exercise, exercise rather, uh, white privilege. Far worse, this is ROTC for the woke. The parallel are faith-based schools who train missionaries to spread the gospel. But unlike traditional missionary programs targeting heathens, these freshly ministered or freshly minted preachers will spread the do- the doctrine of the woke to the elite. Why proselytize among the poor when you can preach the gospel at national public radio? Academic programs in social justice are rapidly multiplying, and this includes our most prominent institutions, such as Brandeis University, Rice, Smith, and Columbia, plus multiple less prestigious less prestigious schools. Now, there are also numerous master's programs whose existence signifies that being a social justice warrior is a certified profession akin to social work. Such professional programs exist at Cornell, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Columbia University, George Mason, Harvard, and elsewhere. Long gone are the days when fighting against injustice was a voluntary career for unemployed rabble-rousers. Today, you may need a degree to join the demonstration against campus racism. So, for example, consider CCNY's Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership. Its radical agitprop agenda for CCNY undergraduates is hardly hidden. Quote, racial justice fellows program will continue to place students at the center of efforts to create systemic change, creating a pipeline for students to become deeply involved in anti-racist movements. 
Its workshops will train students to reform the criminal justice system, fight voter suppression, empower black communities, address environmental justice concerns, and close the racial education gap. So the program's faculty is predictably heavy on social activism and light on traditional scholarship. Now, these programs promise decent jobs for those who learn how to disrupt society, albeit from a leftish ideological perspective. George Washington University's Human Services and Social Justice program is typical. Program graduates can look forward to careers in education, nonprofits, philanthropy, as well as health care and housing. Elsewhere, students are enticed with careers in law enforcement, peace organization, legislative advocacy, and perhaps the biggest employer of all, government. Ever wonder why the environmental group Sierra Club suddenly endorses reparations for blacks? Well, here's one answer. Recently hired young social justice warriors pushed it. This hoped-for transformation of America will be accomplished by thousands of youngsters now learning how to bring disruption thanks to schools that, to some degree, are taxpayer-funded. When did the American public accept this newfound role for higher education? Would this evangelical crusade obligation survive a vote? I suspect not. Few Americans would want to be transformed by these woke youngsters. These are academically flawed programs. Students are being told they will advance social justice. But little, if anything, is said about the content of this enterprise. What, for example, does social justice entail when educating minorities? Eliminating racial discrepancies in school discipline or... Just as plausibly, reducing racial gaps rather in academic achievement, a goal that might entail imposing more discipline on black students. As promulgated by universities, promoting social justice will invariably reflect political fashions. And today's racial justice may tomorrow be the embodiment of systemic racism. Recall how the call for defunding the police has suddenly cooled as the black-on-black carnage soars. Such complexities are easily ignored in the clarion call for signing up for some simple-minded doing good. And tellingly, programs tend to minimize the technical skills of policymaking in favor of just cataloging the endless faults of American society. But improving the world requires competence in statistics, social science methodology, public administration, and avoiding these tough subjects almost guarantees failed policies. What about courses on the intricacies of voting rights and anti-discrimination law? Or how to find archival government data? As noted below, demanding mastery of those intellectually challenging subjects may well deny diplomas for those wanting easy-to-earn, sexy degrees. Schools are thus graduating armies of do-gooders long on commitment and short on technical expertise. No wonder that today's progressive agenda overflows with unrealistic schemes that may make matters worse. Think of the disastrous consequences of bail reform. So two factors may explain this newfound academic infatuation with social justice. First, the need for warm bodies, particularly black students, at a time when attracting students has proven troublesome. Specifically, college costs are skyrocketing five times faster than family income since 1981. And schools want students who can pay or to take on who can pay to take on substantial debt. So whether this means luxury hotel-like dorms or trendy gut majors, you got to fill the classrooms. Similarly, enrollments are in decline, and if that weren't bad enough, add the growing threat of bankruptcy among many schools. 
Also, compared to teaching STEM, social justice is dirt cheap. It gets worse. Enrollment of full tuition students from abroad has sharply declined, so schools must now dig deeper into the domestic supply. And fashionable majors might just be the solution. As for recruiting blacks, the good news is that black college enrollment is about proportional to white enrollment. The bad news is that top schools are hard-pressed to achieve proportionality. And easy-to-pass social justice majors might boost minority enrollment. Further add that recruiting social justice faculty is a convenient tactic to hire blacks without having to satisfy traditional disciplinary standards. The second explanation, well, that's more ideological. Program enrollees are the left's useful idiots in their transformative agenda. Cannon fodder, to be blunt. In some instances, this is also faculty economic uh, uh, self-interest. Fulminating against the misogynist patriarchy is far easier than pursuing serious scholarship. And together with inflated grades, it means larger enrollments than will, that will put bread on the table. Why is this political masochism tolerated? Has any society allowed its educators to bite the hand that feeds them? Surely the well-being of colleges and universities is not more important than the survival of America itself. It's hardly the end of the world if a few colleges cease to exist due to falling enrollments. But there are some serious trade-offs here. Imagine if American universities during the Cold War, openly taught students how to advance communism. For example, to infiltrate big-time philanthropic foundations, to redirect their efforts to destroy the underpinnings of capitalism and private property. And doing so openly, even boasting of this mission to attract students, particularly those from rich families, well, at least then it would have been unthinkable. What has happened? Something is very wrong here, says Robert Weisberg. I think he's right. Definitely should make you think twice before you pack Junior up and send him off to college. By the way, you can find a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. While you're there, go to the bottom of the page. You'll notice a big subscribe button. Share your email with me, and I will drop a copy of my show notes into your email inbox each and every day that I do this program. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.